HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. Now streaming from HRN, this is The Feed Feed. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of The Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Occasionally joined by our co-founders, Julie and Dan Resnick, we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm. So we often say that we're, as Feed Feed, answering this sort of age-old question, which is, what do we eat for fill-in-the-blank, breakfast, lunch, dinner? Our approach to doing so involves lifting up voices from culinary content creators all over the world, no matter how big or small their following is. This podcast takes the democratization of food media one step further by giving a behind-the-scenes look of the Epicurean magazines, websites, videos, and accounts you digest every day. We'll discuss everything from breaking into the industry, navigating social media. That's been my bigger social media thing is like, I think like I just get bored very quickly. And even when things are working really well, I'm like, everyone's doing this. I don't want to do this anymore. Building and growing community. People are like, why is it five E's? And I'm like, I don't know. When you say eats, how many E's does that feel like it sounds like? And that's why. No real good rhyme or reason to any of it, but that's also kind of been our style this whole time. And producing content that resonates with young and old. You know, if someone doesn't like my writing or the photographs of my book or the design, that's subjective. But if I see that a recipe didn't work, then I really failed someone. So whether you want to know what goes into food styling a magazine cover, the process of getting a cookbook deal, understanding what the hell TikTok is, or grasping how a recipe can go viral. I mean, I guess the thing about going viral, too, is that um, then it becomes, it's out there and and people start claiming it as their own. And that's happened a few times recently with that tart, which is sort of depressing. Mm, but... Drag them. <laughs> Name names. I'm not naming no. any names, but you know who you are. <laughs> we'll be covering it all. This is the Feed Feed Podcast. Subscribe to the Feed Feed wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people, 
we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome culinary historian and host and producer of the long-running podcast, A Taste of the Past, Linda Palaccio. In this episode, we'll talk to Linda about why culinary history matters, insights from a podcasting veteran, and we'll hear Linda's Julia moments. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Still contemplating joining us for the fabulous food and wine events and great company on the American Riviera? Don't wait too long as tickets are already selling fast for this year's Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, March 13 to 15, 2020. Three plus days of unique only in Santa Barbara events, including cooking demonstrations, wine tastings, culinary talks, workshops, and classes, farm tours, guided farmer's markets visits, as well as special meals from top chefs like Mary Sue Milligan, Susan Feniger, Ludo Lefebvre, and Chris Bianco, and dinners at Santa Barbara's hottest dining spots like The Lark and BBG. Go to sbce.events to check out the lineup and purchase tickets. You'll even have the chance to attend a live Inside Julia's Kitchen taping. Special hotel rates are on offer until mid-February. Don't miss out, as I'd really love to see you there. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. If you're a Julia fan or a regular listener, you know that Julia cared about culinary history. It's baked right into the foundation that she created. In calling it the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts, Julia intended the foundation to explore what mattered to her, rather than be a monument to her achievements. Now, while Neither gastronomy nor the culinary arts are specifically about history. They are both about studying and education. And as we know, Julia was a consummate student. It was really her deep curiosity that drove much of her success. She wanted to learn all about the why and the how, which leads us on to traditions. And what are traditions other than elements of history? If you're asking, where does a recipe originally come from? you're headed to your bookshelf, or more likely online. Regardless, this is food history. What's the origin of Tarte de Tain? Well, that brings you to a little hotel in France, and then into the reasons why French people might have been stopping there. What's the connection between James Bond and broccoli? Well, there is one. Google it. My point is, we've just explored culinary history. Someone who knows quite a lot about culinary history and how you marry up the past with its relevance for today is Linda Palaccio. Linda is a culinary historian well-known for hosting and producing another Heritage Radio Network podcast, A Taste of the Past, one of its longest-running programs. Started in 2009, very early days in the history of podcasting, A Taste of the Past joins up food, culture, and history through Linda's interviews with authors, historians, and food scholars on topics as diverse as what they ate in ancient Egypt to today's American culinary landscape. Linda began her career as a writer and producer in the nascent days of the Food Network. She has also been the program director for the Culinary Historians of New York. That's where we first met Linda, as the foundation happily supports the Culinary Historians of New York's grant program for culinary history research. 
Linda is also a member of the New York chapter of Les Dames de Scoffier, whose legacy awards we profiled in last week's episode, 75. She joins us today to give us a taste of the past and talk about why culinary history is important, endlessly fascinating, and fun. Welcome to the podcast, Linda. Thanks so much for having me, Todd. That was a great setup, by the way. I loved it. I mean, Julia, pretty much your words of, of Julia's pretty much stated why culinary history is so important. Well, well you're jumping ahead. So let, let, oh. let, let, let's go back in history because I'd like to know just because I, I'm sort of in awe of how long your podcast has been running, which, you know, in the life of history is short time, but in life of podcasting is, 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 is an eternity. And so yeah. I want to start at the beginning, like what led you to start a podcast and, and why did you pick culinary history or was it sort of the other way around? It was the other way around. Interesting that, yeah, that you caught that because um, I've always been a culinary historian. Well, not always, but <laughs> that has been my, that's been my, uh, my, my job, my, my interest. And um, that was always there. There was no, but it's, it's interesting because it's, there's no way, no forum to, to get that information out to a lot of people. Aha. A podcast, all right? So um, Patrick Martin started the Heritage Radio Network, and I know at that time in 2009, a few months before I came along, and um, and I asked him, did he need another show, and did he have some space? And I pitched him the idea, and he said, yeah, can you start tomorrow? So <laughs> that was that. So it sounds like it was like the perfect marriage, that because yeah. culinary history is maybe more of a niche subject, the fact that podcasting, you can be as completely niche as you want to and find an audience was like a perfect marriage? I, I mean, it's turned out that way. I mean, I had no idea whether anyone was listening or not, but I was having a good time <laughs> learning things and exploring different topics. And then it turns out to be you know, rather popular with you know, all kinds of ages. So I'm very pleased about, about the whole outcome. And it's, yes, been a long marriage, a good one. Yeah, and I, I was really struck by, you know, you're coming up, you're not quite there, but you're, you're close enough, I think we can round up to 350 episodes. And so what, what have you found now that you know that people are listening? I mean, I know that you were noted as the top 100 podcast in the Times newspaper in the U, all the way in the UK, which is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. What What do you think, or what have you learned, has made a taste of the past resonate? That I am still trying to figure out. I don't know whether it's the the variety of topics. You mentioned that you know I'm just coming up on 350 episodes. Or I think I just did a 350th, or you are. I don't know. Well, check it out. Um, and you'd think, well, over 10 years, if it's weekly, I'd have a lot more. Mm, no, I'm pretty. I'm pretty liberal about my time off and about choosing the right topic. If I just if I don't have a topic I'm really interested in or found a person, a really good person who can speak to that topic, I just don't do a show. It has to be a well-developed idea for me to have a show. So there are many weeks that get skipped. And and the, and as I said, it's a it's a real variety of topics. I mean, I'll jump from one era in history to another era in history and, and modern day things. And then some maybe books, popular books that are just out that have an element of, of food history in them that I think is relevant to, to talk about. So it's a real, it's a real uh, mashup of, of topics. And 
I guess it works. Well, and I guess an example of how culinary history, I think many times people hear that and they think about, you know, the long ago past or really deep historical topics, but kind of what your show represents is it can be that or it can be something very present, no? That's right. I mean, it's, I always say, you know, whatever you ate yesterday or this afternoon, you know, before, <laughs> that's that's now history. Um, and how, you know, looking at right now in um, different towns, what types of, of foods people are interested in, what type of restaurants are opening, it tells us so much about immigration, um, cooking methods, you know, just the whole, the whole gamut. Yeah, I thought to be more specific, I just listened to your episode where, which you could say it was about Zagat, or you could say it about infatuation, and the infatuation is this mm-hmm. new review site, right? But they're, um, well, I'll let you say what they're doing with Zagat, and you were sort of covering the here and now and the new of what they're doing, but then giving this reflection of the history of of what had been a very important part of, you know, restaurant reviews in America. That's right. I mean, the you mentioned, you know, somebody wants to find out what something in food, they'll most likely not go to their bookshelves, they'll go to the internet. And the same happens. I mean, there's everything available now. Um, restaurant reviews, book reviews, uh, but then you, you sort of have to be careful, you know, like who those sources are online. You can't, they're not always vetted. And then you have somebody like, you know, like Infatuation or a Zagat, and it's a, a trusted, a trusted name, a trusted site. That was what came about early on in book form with these people. And it was, uh, it was peer-reviewed. People who went to the restaurants gave their opinions. It wasn't just somebody out of the blue, you know, writing it. And it was... I think that um, I think that that's interesting to note uh, sources for studying anything, especially culinary history. There's a lot of bad information on the internet. I just just a little warning out there. <laughs> Not bad information, incorrect information. Well, it's also like you you just made me think that well, I was trying to think why did I, I loved Zagat and I really missed it when Google mm-hmm. essentially dismantled it. Um, and but one of the key differences I think right is that. When you go to Yelp, or and I find Yelp helpful, but there's a tendency on the internet for people to use it more for venting than for complimenting. Mm-hmm. And so it's right. skewed, a lot of stuff is skewed, particularly the stuff that's all crowdsourced from people complaining. And usually if you have a thousand, it still nets out well. But the great thing about Zagan is the way that it was curated <laughs> was not focused on complaints. Right. That's right. And I mean, not just anyone could write in. I mean, those those opinions were, as you said, they were vetted, and then they were put together, and then they their own editors would go and uh, people working for them to go and check it out and, you know, double check it and verify it. Yeah, it's it was it's it was a it was and is a, a great tome. It's also a great phone book, too, when you're in a hurry and you want to find, you know, the location and the, and the address and and then read a little something about it. And it just had all the right elements going on. Well, we look forward to seeing what the infatuation does with that. So you were saying That's a little right. bit about how you you curate your own show. And has that been something that really evolved from the first, like when you first started? Did you try to fill every week no matter what? Or you've always kind of felt the selectivity? So I was just curious, have you evolved a lot in, in the process? Or it's pretty much very similar to how you, the original conception? I think it's all pretty, it stayed pretty original i mean you go back and listen to um some of the earliest broadcasts and 
it was yeah early on I tried to you know it was new I, I wanted to I had I felt this obligation to have to have a show every week but then then I realized if you know if it wasn't right it wasn't going to work uh, so it stayed pretty much the same I you know I, I I search a topic and as I say because each show is so um, we were talking before we went on the air that each one of my shows is very um, research heavy for me. I don't go into it unless, because I can't, as a culinary historian, I have I have some specialties that I've studied over the years, but I can't possibly know everything about every topic in culinary history. But I'm interested in them, I, and I love to learn new things. So if I'm not prepared and, and try to learn and know as much as I can about a topic so that I can talk to the person about it intelligently and not you know ask stupid questions, <laughs> for better or for worse, um, I spend a lot of time learning about each topic, and sometimes I'm just not ready, you know, to do that topic. So it's stayed, and that's been that way from the very beginning. Well, that, that, it, it takes a lot of uh, prescience to know, you know, where you're comfortable and, and what should should guide you. So, given this tenure, mm-hmm. wh- why do you think? I mean, and we haven't sort of covered this yet, but there, there's this kind of supposition that culinary history as a legitimate, if you will, topic is new or new-ish or is just coming in it is. to its own. But obviously yeah, you've you, been doing it a long time. Yeah, but you, you've you really hit on something and you're absolutely correct, um, especially, and I can really talk to that, having been um, of a particular age. There was no way to study food history or specifically culinary history back in the day, like when I was in school, you had to find probably a, a mentor or, or faculty member who was willing to go with you a little bit. Uh, universities, schools did not consider the study academic enough, just like food writing, it, well, especially food writing. It was not deemed an academic pursuit in any uh, faculty or department of study. So one kind of ended up cobbling together uh, a method of studying it uh, to, you know, to no specific end at school, but, you know, just for, for, for me, for my own edification. And that would generally lead me to um, anthropology, nutritional anthropology, history, obviously. You know, you can, believe it or not, glean a lot from from historic texts that not much attention was usually given to the food. Art history, and there you have to be a little careful too because the art's not always, you know, somebody wanted a pineapple in the painting, but pineapples didn't exist in that country in that era. So, But it was there. Um, but you can, I mean, old tapestries and, and works of art where they really had to put things in that they knew and saw, you can learn a lot from a lot of these old, um, very old, ancient paintings and, and tapestries. So art history would be another, another form, although I caution someone just to think that art history alone can, can tell you what food was on the table. Um, at any rate, that was, that was to speak to the fact that there was no faculty of food studies. There was no you know, specific path to follow. So um, those of us who were interested sort of had, kind of had to do it ourselves and follow it ourselves. And then... In the 1970s, and thanks to Julia Child and Jacques Pepin, they started the food studies program at Boston University, mm. and that has been that was a real game changer. Mm. 
because soon after that, what followed were food studies programs in, and I think now you can find them in, in, practically at, at every major university, um, and, well, in a lot of smaller universities that, you know, do more um, specialty studies. NYU followed on their heels, and they have a, a wonderful department. And that covers everything from actual food studies, um, food ways, um, and all, but a lot, of, a lot of food history is involved in that, and culinary history now. So, you know, we say, well, what's, you know, what's the difference of, between food history and culinary history? There used to be a line, a very definite line, and academics would always fall on the side of food history because you were looking at the provenance of a food substance, um, the place, the, you know, the agriculture, the, you know, everything about the food. And then culinary history kind of studied more about the food, the food and the food stuffs, how it was used, the equipment used to cook it, um, the presentation on the table, you know, the the, um, the crockery, the introduction of utensils, you know, all kinds of different things that that really were, it was a um, a social studies program. You were learning about societies. Um, and this, this is ultimately so. This line became very blurred, and and now, you know, culinary history has more come into its own because people realize that you can't study a culture without knowing what they ate, and knowing what they ate means well, who did the cooking, and how was it cooked, and how was it eaten, where was it presented, and it just it just blossomed, and now. Since the 70s, it has grown exponentially, I think, in in the numbers of people who are studying it and interested in it. Why? The big question is why. Um, you know, we've we've come of age in this in in America, certainly, and I, I would say I would venture to say in in a lot of other countries. Um, although France and Italy in particular and Western Europe were always very concerned about their food. But mm. America, we were very young. We, we really didn't give much other than, you know, growing it with the farmers. And then there was a lot, a lot of that that was important. But it's, we've become more aware of food and where it comes from, you know, and what we eat. And I think all of this awareness about food certainly plays large in in people becoming interested in then the history and the background. Well, that just struck me. Do you think there's also something of we've lived through one of the longest ages now where there's not been a scarcity of food, you know, particularly for the wealthier countries? And do you think that the when you don't have to be pro- preoccupied where, where your food source is going to come from, that uh-huh. gives right. you more room to think intellectually about it? I, I think that's a very good possibility. I mean, we talk because because what what we talk about in uh, about the foods during times of of deprivation, you know, war times and things, you know, like in Italy, particularly the cucina povera, how many dishes were based on that. We look at it from afar, and we look at it, you know, decades afterwards. And so I think you're right that we, it's because we're not out there scraping together and scrambling around to find. Um, balanced meals that we we can just we can just talk about the food stuffs 
and the food was, and where did this food come from? And, and I, yeah, I think we have a lot more liberty of, of, um, of studies. Well, obviously, at the foundation, we like the idea that you think that the BU's gastronomy program that, that Julia and Jacques Pepin teamed up to help found was kind of a tipping point. But it's interesting because I know what you mean about, you know, obviously, France has a long tradition in Italy of being more interested in food, although there mm-hmm. seems to be academic and history stuff to an extent, but then the UK has a long history. And I think the UK has had the same kind of trajectories in the US for where culinary history was not considered academic or appropriate or food writing wasn't a real career until, like you said, Mm -hmm. in the 70s. And so, you know, I, I agree with you about America being young, but you see the same sort of dismissiveness or you saw the same dismissiveness in the UK, which had a much longer history, no? Yeah, which would which would play to your uh, point about the fact that they have the the leisure to to look at food and not just try to find their food. Yeah. 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 No, I was really struck this comment that has been sitting with me when uh, speaking to my mother-in-law, the food writer Ann Willen, who you know, and and said to me this just offhand comment about you know when I was a child, chicken was a delicacy. You didn't have chicken very often, and I'm thinking what because chicken is so ubiquitous now but it that's a pretty short period of time where it went from you know a rare staple to something that everybody takes for granted at least in in the western world right and it's interesting and then how the chicken industry grew and there were you know too many chickens and then there was disease and oh there have been some interesting shows that i've covered on on uh on chickens and yeah it used to be something that was so easy to just if you had some property, you had a couple of chickens, right? And they would give you eggs, and then when they got old, you were, you had an extra rooster, one would go in the pot. That all changed, of course. Yeah, The whole Industrial Revolution, I think, and the um, concentration of populations in cities, um, which boomed, you know, every wartime sees, post-wartime sees a boom in, in populations in cities. And, um, and I then, so the industrialization of foodstuffs came along, you know, the mechanization of, of mass production. And that changed everything, everything from, you know, to a lot of livestock and chickens included uh, in not only just vegetables and, and other forms of food. Well, and that ties into what you said about the sort of the BU gastronomy program and that the 70s being that maybe tipping point also with the mechanization industrialization of food where it really like cranked up and the technology met the the theories and so that all kind of that also emphasized the interest because as people became more concerned they became more interested thus legitimizing the study of it a bit more too okay we're going to take a break and we'll be right back to talk memorable moments from a taste of the past with linda palaccio stay with us This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. The food service industry faces a challenge. More people are eating out, yet restaurants are losing talent. Why is this? Research by Fair Kitchens reveals a serious well-being issue within professional kitchens. 74% of chefs are sleep deprived to the point of exhaustion. 63% of chefs feel depressed. And more than half feel pushed to the breaking point. This can't be ignored. 
Fair Kitchens is a movement based on the belief that a positive kitchen culture makes for a healthier business. By taking the pledge to be a Fair Kitchen, they'll provide you with free information, tools, and resources to help you take action towards making your restaurant more stable, productive, and happy, which positively affects the guest experience. It's time to act now. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. Welcome back. We're talking to culinary historian Linda Palaccio about hosting and producing Heritage Radio Network's own A Taste of the Past podcast. So, Linda, I know this is challenging because mm-hmm. 300 it is almost hard to think back 350 episodes. But what are do you have some memorable moments or favorite guests that 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 do stand out or really stuck with you? You know, as soon as I go home, I'm going to after the after doing this interview with you, I'm going to think about oh, I should have mentioned so and so. It's a little akin to that question like, you know, choose your favorite child. I mean, each one of them were very memorable to me because there so much I learned so much from each show. Um, but I think uh, things that sort of stand out with me are um, were um, and they and they they run from new to old. Uh, certainly, my having Sally Granger on the show here. Sally is a um, a very well known food historian and, and recreator of dishes and from the UK. Um, and she has done an extensive study on garum, the or liquamen, the the you know the seasoning that was used throughout the ancient Roman period and onward. And uh, she you know, just she's just so knowledgeable and learning so much about the food. And ancient Roman history happens to be one of my favorite periods. Um, also, um, another one that. <laughs> Well, something Wait! Don't leave us there. Tell us about. some interesting. What's oh. your, what's one of your favorite things about ancient Roman um, culinary history? Uh, um, I guess how how sophisticated how sophisticated the dishes were, how sophisticated a lot of their agricultural methods were. I mean, you know, the, there were people who you know, the wealthy who had, of course, their homes in the country, outside of the city of or the, or the empire of Rome. In, yes, in the country. And they wanted fish. They wanted fresh fish on their plate. So they had the ingenuity. I mean, you, you think about the aqueducts in Rome, I mean, how, how advanced, what engineers they were, how, you know, in, in, in building cities. Well, they decided, well, if we can build these aqueducts, why couldn't we build channels and have the fresh fish float up and have fresh fish on our plate when we wanted it. Because there was no fast means of travel. How are they going to get there in a, in a chariot? <laughs> it's going to take them a long time to get that fish on a their just plate. A just-eats-fish delivery chariot. <laughs> right, right. Um, I just found that fascinating. Uh, that, you know, that so, much, so much attention and, and ingenuity would go into into that and, and now this was just their country home this was not their you know their city abode and i thought that you know but also the sophistication of the of the flavors and the spice trade was you know was growing by leaps and bounds so the flavors in the dishes were were very um, intense and very and and very different you know and i cooking methods were um were also very interesting from 
almost what I can say, like stir frying to baking in the ovens they had. They had wonderful ovens. And um, I guess it just intrigues me because it, it was so so sophisticated. Well, and I think that combination, right, of how advanced the civilization was for how long ago um, it also was, and that you, especially as things have evolved or knowledge was lost or not duplicated, it, it, it is always, I think, extraordinary to look at it, Roman civilization. Yeah, a lot of those fish channels, I'm sure, weren't duplicated in too many places. But And is that what, it, were they some of the first canal builders then, or this was sort of different? Um, I I think this was different. They were I think these had to have been the houses that were out of the city, but not that far out that they couldn't that this could was conceivable. Mm. So were they the first canal buildings? Well, I don't know, but no, I mean they're probably. And yet I'm looking to I'm looking thinking of other um, countries and areas of the world that where canals were very important. yeah they must have had them in yeah, Mesopotamia I mean, yeah. and places like that right. Right, exactly. I mean, for a, for a city, for a culture to thrive, it a had to be built next to a water source, the ocean, rivers, you know, lakes. Otherwise, the you know the culture would, you know, would die out. So, hmm. um, water was very important. So, from ancient and, Rome, where else have you been taken yeah. that really you you've loved going? Uh, you know. Just, I mean, just throwing in, I'm not going to go, you know, in detail too much, but I love learning about the history of refrigeration. Um, <laughs> that is not and, what and I expected I'm, you to say, but okay, let's go there. Uh, yeah, yeah, all right. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I, I, you know, I I, I've said at the beginning of the podcast that culinary history is endlessly fascinating. So what is endlessly yeah, fascinating I, about the history of refrigeration? <laughs> and and I'm, I'm blanking on the professor's name at this, at this time, but he wrote a wonderful book. Um, it's called, I think, just Refrigeration. But... Yeah, well, you know, you think about what, how we existed, how we kept foods fresh. I mean, it, you know, we went back a ways on talking about it, and, and he did. There were chunks of ice. Well, how did you get chunks of ice in there? So there were ice ponds, there were ice houses, and, you know, we started at the very beginning of keeping things cold, you know, you, you know, burying things, burying some ice, and, and ice was, you know, was hard to come by in a lot of places because the temperature was just never that cold. Oh, I get it. So you're talking then, about the whole, I was thinking refrigeration of like mechanized, yeah. but you're talking about how any, because well, I do was, find that, that fascinating, his, well, like how they look. Yeah, well, that was, I mean, his specialty was, yes, the machinery and the, and the mechanization of refrigeration. But in order to explain why this was important, he had to look back. Mm. And that's, that's what culinary history is. I mean, you can't just talk about something, you know, in a vacuum at its present time without looking, well, where did we come from? And it's all like this whole, what is it, 23andMe, you know, the DNA studies of, you know, where did I come from? Well, the same thing with food. Mm. you got to look back to, you know, to where did it all come from and why? Why did we need a refrigerator? Why did we need refrigeration? I, I found that very fascinating. Well, I found, yeah, I want to know what you learned about ice houses, because I still have a really hard time, it's even that movie Frozen, where they're like harvesting the ice. But obviously they did that, because right. things like ice cream and granita and things have existed for longer than modern refrigeration. But obviously... And that's right. right? It yeah. was a, did you, so... And there were... I've always been like amazed that ice houses worked. Yeah, and they had a lot of different forms of them, and I've, you know problem with doing these shows is I've forgotten as much as I've learned. I mean, can't keep everything in the, you know, on the top of my head. But um, the ice houses were, were very amazing. Bare, you know, you, it's like insulation. If you, if you pack enough stuff around ice, it, 
it will hold for a lot longer than just putting an ice cube on the table, you know. So different things would be used to pack around it to keep it cold. And, and then there were methods of, um, of burying it, too. And, you know, and just like making charcoal, I'm thinking, uh, I was thinking also about making charcoal. But, don't, you know, you're getting me thinking about a lot of other things. <laughs> See, one thing always leads to another, um, and, <laughs> and that's how I form my shows. Well, but, and yeah, and I know I'm really challenging you to, like, pick, pick amongst your children, and there are a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Maybe if we change the, the way we think about it, are there, just as you were talking about, that that was memorable to you because you find the refrigeration topic fascinating and have lots of cool rabbit holes – what are there other things that you really surprised you or really changed your own perspective just from doing the episode and having the guest on? Yes. You know how salt all of a sudden has become this hot commodity. Mm. It always was a commodity. It was you know you you know in 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 the early just pre-renaissance times. I mean, a salt cellar was a very special uh, thing made by the top um silversmith and an important guest was seated above the salt Mm -hmm. or below the salt i mean that you know so salt had an exalted place at the table of course it did we know we we can't exist without salt um and so now salt we have all these sea salts you know iodide we we went through the whole period of iodized salts and salt mines you know that that originally of course come from oceans you know because they're down in the in underground um but you know we're all about fancy sea salts now and then i ran across this um this woman and her uh brother or cousin the dickinsons who are who have a salt works in the appalachian mountains and they um found it was it was something that existed um, for a couple of centuries in their family. But then it kind of fell, uh, the, the, the salt pumping, you know, went fallow. It is an ancient lake, or an ancient sea, and I, I don't remember the name of the sea at this time, but then it became part of another larger ocean complex. And we're talking, you know, way underground, way in the bottom of the mountains and in, underneath... And this ancient sea was discovered by, I guess, you know, dripping and drilling. And big cedar trees were used to uh, tap down into these 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 big wells and holes that they would drill, and they would they would pull up very very salty water that had been just trapped underground in these you know these mountain areas, and um, this family, as I say, hundreds for a couple of cent- uh, generations had had been digging it up and drying it, and and that was their salt. And this um, chef, she was a former chef, and and uh, her cousin and her brother, and um, bought the rights to the. They didn't own the farm anymore, but they bought the rights, or it was in the family, but cousins owned it. That's what it was. They bought the rights to drilling, or the, you know, to the where the mine was and and they have uh resurrected this these salt works from this ancient sea and then they built these the only thing i can liken them to is like a a, you know a farming hoop house so they constructed these giant hoop houses that 
would let the sun through, and they and they just put this salty, you know, strained, like panning for gold, you know, the pan, panned salt out of it and put it in these hoop houses and go and stir it every day with their hands and dry it out, and it becomes uh, this incredible salt. And I have tasted it, and it's really... And you can buy it online, um, J.Q. Dickinson's. And it's... Um, it has a different flavor. It has a different crystal, a different shape, and it's to me that was that was fascinating. Mm. Yeah, no, I didn't. I, I mean, I, there are so many fascinating elements of who knew you could have a salt mine in the middle of Appalachia, and who knew that you could right. drill into the ground to an ancient seabed and pull it out. Because because I was imagining when you first started talking about it that it was like a mine, and you would get the salt like golden chunks, and then you would break it up. But but no, actually, no, we're talking still in water. Just, yeah. The, yeah, well, I guess that's a, an idea if you have a country property or live more remotely and you drill a well and it's salty. You, you, you don't have to fret. You can start a salt mine. Right. Well, now they knew, they knew because this has been, had been done for, you know, uh, as I say, a couple hundred years. And then she did research and found out the sea, where the sea was and when it went, you know, when it, I guess in the ice age or whatever, when, you know, the plates of, of the continents moved together, it was no longer, you know, a self-existing sea, and it got trapped underground. And I just, I found that fascinating. <laughs> no, that is fascinating. Um, yeah, um, I'm fascinated by rather esoteric things <laughs> from time to time, but also, I'm, but also just cultures. I, you know, learning about a culture that I, I had no knowledge of. Something I'm working on now because Korean food is so popular, and I'm, I'm doing research now on. Korean food and the history of the Korean foods. But, you know, it's interesting. You can find a topic um, that, that one can find a topic that interests you and, and, and study it and learn more about it. Finding the person to speak to about it is that's, that's a challenge. Um, and my show is an interview show, like your show is. It's, you know, it's no good for me to just sit on the air and, and have a, a monologue that will put probably put people to sleep but having i love that interaction with another person who knows who has you know who has deep knowledge about their topic and 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 i just like it's very selfish too i love to learn from them and i do Mm. so on that note so are you still on the hunt i was going to ask you about either the ones that got away or the one the people that you would love to have on that maybe you haven't asked them yet or they're being coy or are you looking for a Korean food expert? Who, who Who's on your, yeah. your must-have no, yeah, list? That, my must-have list is always whatever topic I'm, I'm interested in at the time. And I, don't, I can't say that there are ones who got away. It's going to be, you know, I, I hate to give like the, you know, the, you know, the sort of a non-answer to an answer. I would love people from history. That if I could get... If I could get Bartolomeo Scappi on and talk to him, I would be, you know, thrilled. Or Mezibugo, or, or Apicius. But I mean, even more recent, Araboni, who, you know, was she wrote the Talisman de Felicitas. It was the it was, the Bible for a lot of Italians during um, the, I'd say the. Uh, you know, around the war, post-war period, immediate post-war period, and prior to that, her first edition, of, I'm forgetting when the first edition came out, but she was really responsible for for kind of introducing um, 
pasta in various forms to different areas of Italy. You know, it was basically a, a, for a large part a southern um, construct because you needed wheat, you needed you needed milled flour. And I just did a show with the creator of the Pasta Grannies. It's mm-hmm. a huge I, uh, YouTube channel hit. And um, it, we were talking about how now pasta is where it used to be polenta and beans. And in the north, you didn't really have, they didn't, they ate rice. They didn't really eat a lot of pasta. Their hard wheat was not, you know, was not um, conducive to making pasta. And then, of course, over the, over the years, that changed. And Ada Boni, a, a food writer, and she really, uh, she really was instrumental in helping introduce pasta to other parts of, of Italy. Well, and that's what I always think that I like to blow people's mind with if they're not particularly knowledgeable about culinary history. Is so many <laughs> things that are associated with quintessential Italian food, pasta, tomato <laughs> sauce, those are things right. that are actually relatively recent in the history of Italy. So, you know, right. these things that are seem so eternal are are very evolutionary and and not eternal that's right that's right and a lot of the shows do i mean inevitably will you know will have to do a little separation about wait a minute that's a new world food you know that that came after the americas were discovered because that's you know tomatoes as you mentioned and potatoes and yet so many um different cuisines are based on around that so we it's interesting because it shows how how cultures easily embrace new things Uh, do we need to i'm i'm very happy that a lot of these um these dishes uh, culinary historians are you know documenting a lot of these dishes which we don't want to lose those we don't want to forget about those but at the same time a lot of cuisines are evolving and no longer prepare those particular dishes, but we've embraced new foods. I mean, who knew that this culture would be so enamored with ramen or pho, right? This, I'm, this, this culture I'm talking about, Western mm-hmm. cultures, you know, in America or the UK. And, um, it, you know, and that's, that's kind of re- maybe replaced, not replaced, but it's, it has a real seat at the table in our in our cuisine now and then. So now generations will write about it and that will be part of what they'll write about. Well, I think that's a good way to bring us full circle. We're going to be right back. So do you think learning about culinary history informs the present? What are your favorite milestones in culinary history? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org and let us know. After the break, Linda's going to reveal her Julia moment. We'll be right back. Like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter.
when you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, Linda, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> um, um, I had to pick one in particular because there were a couple. And then just what I love about loved about Julia was that she was so talking about embracing new things. I mean, she was so welcoming and encouraging to anyone who came, you know, in her path. Um, but the one that uh, was my, the, one of the latest memories was I was, after I was at the Food Network, I, with a group of, of people, we started a, a website, Everyday Kitchen, and then from that we decided to do or we didn't, someone else decided to do a radio show that would help drive traffic to the website. And we had all been together at the, at the Food Network. We all had met Julia many times. And um, I was the executive producer of this radio show, a two, oh, Monday through Friday for two hours. Ooh. <laughs> two-hour show, yeah. I, and I produced it. This was in, in 2000. So I produced it from my fax machine and, um, and my office to people who were, you know, living, were elsewhere. Anyway, the point is we had to get people's attention. It was only in a few markets. It, it wasn't the Boston market, however. Uh, it was a terrestrial radio station, a regular radio station, and, and it played in really strange communities and, and cities, not in New York City where we, where we were all located. Um, so we we figured we needed a really big splash to to we had a, a woman and a man who interviewed different people in the food industry and chefs and and food writers and and um, talked about dishes and well who else to kick off the beginning of a new radio show but Julia Child and I said I'll call her you know I'll, I'll we all had incredible Rolodexes and yes they were actual paper Rolodexes in those days so I gave a call and Stephanie Hirsch had been her longtime mm-hmm. assistant at that time and I called her and I'd met her several times and I said hi Stephanie and I said um, we were wondering if you know Julia would be available to um, to be on the air with our host and and talk about you know food whatever I forget what the topic was and she said well hold on just a minute and next thing I know it's like Oh, hello, dear. <laughs> and 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 I asked her the question. Was Julia? And who? I mean, who would ever expect that you call? You know, even the the people of minor importance, you would only get through to their publicist or you know their assistants. But Julia was on the phone, and she just wanted to talk directly. And that was so so something that was so indicative of her style. She was very hands on and so personal about her contacts and her work. And and I asked her the question, and she said, oh, I think that sounds like it would be fun. Of course I'll do it. I'm, you know, I, I, just, I don't think I ever heard her say no. And, and that, to me, it was, she was just so, so open and so welcoming. And that's something, 
something that I try to remember is to always be positive and always be, it doesn't always work, and, and always try to be accepting and welcoming to, to new adventures. And that was something that she certainly was representative of. And I think that is lovely and a great way to uh, do your Julia moment. So thank you very much. And, and here I am back in radio. Yeah, there you are. Well, it was that, that yeah. encouragement from her accessibility and willingness to try new things that's led you to 350 episodes. There you go. Well, thanks for coming on our show. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. It was a real pleasure and an honor. Too. Thank you very much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. So Linda Palaccio's podcast is a taste of the past, also on our own Heritage Radio Network. The new season has just begun, or you have almost 350 episodes to catch up on. Pick the ones that sound most interesting to you, or have a real binge session. Search for it wherever you find your podcasts, or go to heritageradionetwork.org and search A Taste of the Past. If you want to stay up to date with Linda, she's at Linda Palaccio, it's P-E-L-A-C-C-I-O on Instagram and Twitter, and at Linda Cook Palaccio on Facebook. Tell your friends to find out more about the foundation by following us at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Selkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review. It really does help listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.